Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the second of our two classes on resurrection apologetics. Last week was Simon Inning. Thank you very much, Simon. Tremendous class. This time it's Rob Payne. But before we get into Rob's material, just a reminder about why we are doing this series. It's to refresh our faith, to help us have even greater confidence in what we believe, and also to resource us to be able to answer the questions of those who may not understand what the resurrection is really all about. In Acts chapter 17, we see the Apostle Paul in Athens, a pagan city, and he concludes his sermon there by talking about the resurrection. He says he's given proof to this, of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So that's how he concludes his sermon to a people that don't understand anything to do with the Messiah. He talks about the resurrection. And what's the response? It says that when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, of the dead, some of them sneered. And that's still true today. We find some people don't have any interest or, um, or discount the resurrection without investigating it. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And of course, then we know that Paul would have had, uh, would have had the information that he needed to be able to pass on why he believed in the resurrection. And that's what we're doing here, at least in part, is giving ourselves resources so that we can answer questions people might have if they want to talk about our faith and the resurrection. Well, without further ado, let me pass you on to Rob Payne for his class this week. Thanks, Malcolm, for asking me to put together this talk on the resurrection. My favourite argument for the resurrection is the conversion of the Apostle Paul from a persistent persecutor of the early church to a passionate, persuasive preacher of the resurrection. I'm going to give a quick recap of the lesson before from Simon Dinning and some facts that are helpful for us to be aware of before focusing on the conversion of Paul. Simon focused on two main historical facts that are accepted by practically all scholars who study the subject, even the sceptical ones. And the first was that Jesus's followers claimed and believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And how do we know that? There's an acronym POW, um, P for Paul the Apostle, not one of the 12, wrote about it, and we'll talk about that later. O, the oral tradition, that the resurrection was part of a creed of the early church written within five years of Jesus's death. And thirdly, W, the writings of the early church. The early church fathers confirmed that Jesus's followers claimed and believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And secondly, the empty tomb. And that's another acronym you can use is, um, is JET. So J for Jerusalem, that he, Jesus was killed in Jerusalem and the disciples were preaching in Jerusalem. So if the tomb wasn't empty, the authorities could have just gone and got the body and proved that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Secondly, E for enemies. The enemies of the early church uh, agreed that the tomb was empty. They even paid soldiers who were guarding the body to say that the disciples stole the body. And why do that if the tomb wasn't empty? And thirdly, the testimony of women. In those days, the testimony of women was not as acceptable as evidence. So why would the gospel writers include that women discovered the empty tomb in the gospel accounts if they were making the story up? They, they included it, it's argued, because that was what really happened. And there's other facts that we don't really have time to talk about. So the third fact is that Jesus was crucified. So the sceptical scholar John Dominic Crossan said that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be. And, and within 150 years of Jesus's death, there are 42 ancient authors mentioning Jesus. In comparison, for example, with only 10 sources mentioning the Roman emperor at the time, Tiberius Caesar. 
Fourthly, the fact that Jesus, um, sorry, that James, the brother of Jesus, changed from being a skeptic to a leader in the early church. And it's one thing to convince people you don't know that you are the son of God and to follow you to their deaths. It's another thing to be able to convince your own family who've grown up with you. And if you want to read more, I can recommend this book, The, the Case for the Resurrection of Jesus by Gary Harvamas. Malcolm has asked me to aim this talk at, um, at helping people who are curious and want to know more. And it's an important point to say that, that many people um, are not willing to listen to us unless our lives back up the message that we claim to believe. And people have to want to believe or want to listen to us in order to ask questions of us. So part of the point of this lesson is to encourage us to, to live in such a way that people are curious. Uh, it's not to give you facts to, to kind of bash people over the head with and try and make people believe, because that's frankly not likely to go very well. Um, and I do like the quote that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So many people are, are not going to examine the Bible for themselves or the evidence for themselves. Um, they're going to look at our lives first. And, um, and it's important to remember that even Jesus himself got a hearing because of what he was doing, healing the sick, loving those in need, feeding the hungry. And as a consequence, people came to him and were prepared to listen to what he had to say. So people look at our lives to help them decide if they're willing to listen to us. And so our love and our lives speak more than our logic. As Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. However, for those who are curious and open to listening, um, it is important that we have facts and logical arguments to help build our faith and their faith. And if people doubt the Bible and doubt Jesus, there are some foundational facts that everyone accepts and, and questions that follow. Firstly, time itself. You can ask people, what year are we in? And they might look at you a bit weird if you ask them that question. But the question is, why, why do we call it year 2021? 2021 AD, 2021 Anno Domini, 2021 in the year of our Lord. The, the point being that the Romans based their dates on the reigns of the emperors. So why did they change it to base their whole calendar on the birth of someone they crucified? And why do we still date everything from that time today in the Western world? That's pretty hard to explain if Jesus was just another failed Messiah. Secondly, what ancient book has the best manuscript evidence, the most, the most handwritten copies? And the answer is the New Testament. You can go and see, as you probably know, one of the oldest and best preserved New Testaments in the world, the Codex Sinaiticus, in the British Library in Euston. And that was produced at around 350 AD. And um, it's beautiful. And there are over 25,000 New, New Testament manuscripts far more than for any other ancient book from antiquity. The closest is Homer's Iliad, and now there are uh, almost 2,000 manuscript copies of that have been discovered, um, but that's far less than 25,000 for the New Testament. And the resurrection is a central doctrine of the New Testament. So why would so many New Testament manuscripts be laboriously produced and, and preserved by hand if, if the resurrection wasn't true? Um, time was measured from the birth of Christ and so many thousands of manuscripts were produced because of the growth of the early church and the effects that it had on the ancient world. And a very significant factor in the spread of the early church was the life and preaching of the Apostle Paul. 
and the conversion of the Apostle Paul is the main focus of this talk. So Paul made a radical change from a persistent persecutor of the early church to a passionate, persuasive preacher of the resurrection. And the question is why? If you heard that Richard Dawkins had gone from being a militant atheist to a TV evangelist, you would want to know why. And the change of the Apostle Paul was much more extreme. How do we know that it happened? Well, first of all, we've got Paul's letters. We have thousands of handwritten copies of the letters he wrote to the churches he founded because they were copied and distributed by early Christians and contain details of his life before and after his conversion. For example, in the uh, the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians written about 49 AD, in, in chapter 1, verse 11 to 13, he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. In verse 22 and to 24, he says, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they praise God because of me. So why this change? Another thing that helps answer this question is the account known as Acts of the Apostles, again in the New Testament, and by the ancient historian Luke, who was a traveling companion of Paul. Luke records Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and also in chapter 26. And it was clearly a central event in his history of the early church. And Luke had written that he had himself had carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Now, you could doubt that, and people might doubt that, and doubt the reliability of Acts written by Luke, and, and people have. You could point them to a famous skeptical scholar called Sir William Ramsey, who set out to prove that Acts was unreliable. But after more than 30 years of close study of first century Christianity and travels in the Bible lands, exam examining whether the archaeology backed up Luke's account, he changed his mind and wrote, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. So let's read Luke's account in Acts chapter 9. So Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Saul, that was the name of Paul obviously before he became Paul, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's the early church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul answered. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And in verse 17, then Ananias, Ananias went to the house and entered it. 
Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on, his, on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So why the radical change? Luke says that Paul saw and heard the risen Christ, that he was blinded for three days, that he miraculously received his sight again and was filled with the Holy Spirit. And now Paul clearly believed the resurrection. We know this by his willingness to suffer for what he was preaching. There was a radical change. As I've said, he went from a persistent persecutor to a persuasive preacher. And we can read about the effects of his preaching and his suffering in the book of Acts from chapter nine onwards. The resurrection was central to his message. And I'm going to end by reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is the main chapter written by Paul on the resurrection, in which he says that Christ dying for our sins and rising from the dead was of first importance. The resurrection was central to what Paul was preaching and doing. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1, it says, Now, brothers, and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul is saying that there are 500 eyewitnesses. <laughs> He's inviting people to question others and to find them, seeing that and that saying that these people saw the resurrected Jesus. This was not some private mystical experience or a hallucination, and, and mass hallucina hallucinations, it's been scientifically proven, do not happen. Then he appeared to James, he says, and James, the brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles, and, um, and verse 8, and last of all, he appeared to me. In verse 14 of chapter 15, it says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. In verse 31, it says, I face death every day. Paul was prepared to suffer for what he was preaching, as we've said, and we can read more about that in Acts and also in 2 Corinthians. In verse 32, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In verse 51, I listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So in light of all that he had written 
in this, the whole letter of um, 1 Corinthians, what was his conclusion? In verse 58, he says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give your, yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He says, let nothing move you. Things happen in our lives. Um, it's our choice how we respond. Paul says, let nothing move you. And then he says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's important that we are wholehearted, that we don't lose heart. And I haven't got time to go into talk about all that. But if you are losing heart, it's really important that you, you, you talk about it and find ways to become wholehearted again. And one of the things that helps me is to know that our labor is not in vain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, it says, Paul says, the one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. God is our father. God rewards us um, according to our labor, not necessarily according to our results. And of course, if we labor in faith, that, that will have its effects. And many of those effects, that we, we don't even know what they are. Um, but God will reward us according to our labor, it says. And that helps me. Sometimes I can be tempted to be discouraged that my efforts don't lead to the visible effects that um, I might like to see. And it helps me to know that God is looking at my labor, even if other people may only see my lack of visible results at the moment and that our labor is not in vain. So concluding points, we're not necessarily trying to totally prove the resurrection. And um, what we're trying to point out is that the resurrection is by far the best explanation for the historical facts. And so it's good to be aware of these facts and ask people if they would like to hear some of the evidence for the resurrection. And if we're not sure of them or we can't remember them, we can always get back to them. Um, but it's really good to start the conversation. And those facts just to remind us are firstly that Jesus was crucified. We know that from history and so many historical accounts. Um, we know that his followers claimed and believed that he rose from the dead. Thirdly, we know that the tomb was empty for the reasons I gave. We know that Paul was converted and martyred. And we know that James, the brother of Jesus, became a follower and was martyred. And by far and away, the best explanation for facts two to five is that Jesus was resurrected. Of course, that would be a miracle, people might say. Well, and it takes faith to believe it. Yes, it does. But life itself is a miracle. And this amazing universe is a miracle. And if there is a God who's powerful enough to make a universe fine-tuned for life, and I haven't got enough time to go into that, but um, I spent 10 years as a physics teacher, <laughs> like I could talk for a long time about those things, then, then raising the dead is a, a pretty simple for a God who can make a whole universe. And he is definitely worthy of worship and devotion. And we would do well to bet our life on him and his word. So some questions for discussion. What does it mean for you to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord? What is he calling you to do? Who is he calling you to love? to serve, to talk to. And as we talk to people, how might we start a conversation with someone who might be open to hearing about the evidence for the resurrection or other evidence for God and Jesus? What kind of questions would you ask to get the conversation started? Thanks. Thanks ever so much, Rob. I really appreciate the time and effort you put into this. And I can also thoroughly recommend the book that Rob mentioned. Rob actually lent me his copy and I read it and I found it tremendously helpful to my faith. 
but also in thinking about how to express my faith and teach about it uh, to other people. I won't add anything to the questions he asked, but I thought they were really good. If you might like to talk about these in our family groups, in our home settings, wherever we are, uh, what does it mean for us to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord? What is the Lord calling us to do? And who is he calling us to love and to serve and to talk to? And perhaps if you'd like, you might also want to discuss of all the uh, resurrection apologetics we've talked about this week and last time with Simon Dinning, which one was most meaningful to you in your faith? And which one do you think you might find most helpful in talking about your faith in the resurrection uh, to other people? I hope you found this little series helpful. And if you have any suggestions about other areas of apologetics you'd like us to uh, record on and, and uh, to provide, then do please let me know. You can email me, malcolm at malcolmcox.org. Malcolm at malcolmcox.org. Thanks very much. Take care. And God bless. <laughs>